All right. Well, it is good for us to be in worship together here this morning. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and uh, also greetings to our friends in the East Auditorium and to the First Christian Church in Lovington as well. And if you're like, what's what's that about? Um, And maybe you've been on vacation the last couple weeks. Uh, We are in the middle of a grand experiment with the First Christian Church in Lovington where they are participating in our sermons uh, via video. So kind of a a, a neat thing and a neat partnership between the two churches, which dates back actually a number of years, which I might hint at here in just a little little bit. Uh, but in both locations, in all locations, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you should find one in the pew rack in front of you to use or East Auditorium. There's some folks walking around and also in the pew racks in Lovington uh, for you guys to uh, follow along this morning. As we've been in a series entitled Quotables, where as the video suggested, we've been looking at really these popular quoted passages that we tend to see visually around us, whether, you know, imprinted or screen printed or hung in frames on our walls, uh, which is all good. I mean, it's all a good and biblical thing to have God's word, you could say, plastered around us visibly so that it might uh, take root in our hearts and hopefully then in the living of our lives. In fact, God's word, Deuteronomy 6, says to do this. It says it this way. It says, these commandments, they're to be on your hearts. And in order to get them there, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so what we're doing in this series is we're taking a deeper look at some of these favorite Bible passages that we see in these various places, uh, but that maybe we've taken for granted or maybe glossed over simply because we see them so much. It's kind of the, like kind of brush off the dust of familiarity on some of these passages so that we can get a deeper look, uh, get under uh, what's really happening and the full story behind those verses so that we can more fully get it dwelled in our hearts and in the living of our lives. And so the verse we're going to look at today is the one and only John 3.16. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And as I was reading through various commentaries on John 3.16, it says in various places that John 3.16 is the most preached verse in all the Bible. To which I went to Wayne and said, when's the last time you preached on John 3.16? And when's the last time? And so we started looking at the records and nowhere can we find in the history of our time preaching here, at any point did we preach exclusively, and I'm sure it's been in some things, but never have we said, let's preach specifically on John 3.16. And I would suspect that the reason for that is probably the same reason we're doing that in this series. It's, it's familiar. We, we know it. We see it um, probably more than any other verse visibly around us in our, in, our, in our setting, in our culture. You know, if you've ever maybe been to a sporting event where they've held up John 3.16, uh, or, or maybe a, a billboard that says, God saves, and John 3.16, or bumper stickers. It's, it's probably the most plastered verse throughout our culture. And what I think probably has happened for many of us is because it's so visible and familiar, in some ways, it risks becoming what you might call Bible white noise. 
You know what white noise is. It's like a noise that is just consistent and constant and you hear it over and over again to the point where you don't actually hear it because it's always there. And I think for us, John 3.16 is that kind of verse. It's that kind of um, passage where we see it so much that we maybe don't give it the credit or the understanding or the, um, the study it's due. And so that's why we're looking at it in this series specifically. And so let's take a deeper look at the context of this verse, John 3.16, which, of course, any verse in the Bible is going to be found within the context of an entire book of the Bible. And so, of course, John 3.16 is in the book of John. And the book of John is one of four books that are called the Gospels, uh, the four Gospels that share the life, the ministry, and the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that do that. And in the first two chapters leading up to chapter three that we're going to look at, we see that the long-awaited Messiah, John, the author, he's saying that the long-awaited Son of God, the Savior who has come to rescue his people, has come in the person of Jesus. And interesting for me, I, I didn't grow up going to church, and so when I saw that message that Jesus saves, um, that Jesus rescues, John 3.16, honestly, I was kind of like, saves me from what? Like, I didn't know I needed rescuing. And so John chapter three in its full context gives us um, the answer to that question I had as a, you know, as a, as a, as a kid and, and now as we understand more fully John 3.16 today. And so to help us with that, I'm gonna illustrate and some of you have seen this before but it's still really helpful, uh, I find. And so we always start with God. Everything starts with God. And uh, God created man and woman and Adam and Eve in the Garden of, Ed, uh, Garden of um, Eden, um, they chose to disobey God. They sinned, which the word sin literally means to miss the mark. God had a mark that said, don't eat from this tree. They missed the mark. They sinned. And now sin has been a part of the human experience ever since. And so because of that sin of missing the mark that God set, which by the way, God's mark is, you could just summarize it as sinless. He's holy and perfect and set apart. That's terrible set apart from sin. And so sin cannot be in the presence of sinlessness. And so as a result of that, there is, you could say, a big chasm or a, a, a gap between us and God because we are separated from God. It says in Romans 6 that we are separated from God because we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sin in our lives uh, that separates us from God. And so that obviously makes us sad. And so... <laughs> We're separated from God. And uh, in John chapter three, we have the setting where a guy by the name of Nicodemus, who was one of the religious leaders of the time, he would have been a, an Old Testament scholar. He would have known the scriptures. And he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, I wanna know if you really are, as the first two chapters in John suggest, the son of God, the Messiah, uh, the savior who has come for us. And furthermore, if that's who you are, what can you do about this? What can you do about that? And so Jesus responds, we'll pick it up in verse three of chapter three, follow along. Jesus tells Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. In other words, no one can get from here to here unless, he says, they are born again. It literally means if unless you are born from above. 
And so Jesus goes on to explain what that actually means because Nicodemus is a little confused and frankly so are we. If you've ever been born, you wonder what do you mean to be born yet again. And so Jesus explains to Nicodemus using an illustration that as a Bible scholar, Nicodemus would have understood from a story of the Old Testament uh, in verse 14. So if you follow, jump down to verse 14, Jesus explains how he, what he has to do with this gap this way. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, okay, and so for those of us who aren't like Old Testament memory geniuses, essentially that's a story from the Old Testament where the people of God were wandering around in the wilderness, they were disobeying God, and as a result they started getting bitten by snakes, poisonous snakes, bad day, and so, the, so God brings healing to them and said, if you symbolically look up at this bronze snake that's lifted up on a stick by Moses, then you'll find healing. And really, it's meant to have all kinds of symbolism and uh, foreshadowing and really of what Jesus will ultimately fulfill, which he's going to talk about right here. And so, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up, as we know, on a cross. The Son of Man must be lifted up. And then verse 15, and everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then from there, John three sixteen paints in a single verse how all of this is made possible. We'll kind of break it down a little bit. It says that for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Now, this would have been a, this would have caught Nicodemus's attention because he understood, yeah, well, God loves God's people of the Old Testament. He loves Israel, but God loves the entire world. And so this is, a, this is a shift. And so God so loved the whole world that he gave. He gave his one and only son. And we know um, that that story continues, that he didn't just give him from heaven to earth, but he also gave him from life to giving up his life to death on a cross. Okay? And so God so loved the world, he so loved us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have, be able to bridge the gap to eternal life, a relationship with God, both now and forever. And so in just that one verse, we discover really what has been said, the gospel, the good news, you could sum up the whole Bible, some would say, in just that one verse. Because what we see in that verse really is this cascading effect that just unfolds the full character of who God is. Uh, we see that we experience the character of God's love, that God's love is for everyone. And from there, the character of his love is played out in the sacrifice of his one and only son. So to what extent does he love us? He could go no further than to give us his one and only son. And then from there, we see the eternal purpose of that sacrifice, that Jesus died paying the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins that we otherwise deserved. He bridges that gap. He takes that upon himself. He pays the penalty of death by experiencing death so that we don't have to. And so to sum up John three sixteen, we see the character of God's love. We see then the sacrificial nature of his character and then the eternal purpose of that sacrifice. Okay? The character of God's love the sacrificial nature of his character, and then, of course, the eternal purpose of his sacrifice, of which John 3 goes on to paint what that looks like and paint the implications of that. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Now, this is an important verse because some people in misunderstanding think, okay, Jesus came to judge and to condemn. No, he did not come to condemn the world. In fact, Colossians 2, we, without Jesus, we're all condemned. We are already, it says, dead in our sin. And so Jesus came to reconcile and change what already was, uh, to change what otherwise would have existed without him. Okay, and then verse 18, from there goes on to explain, you could say the application that we get from John three sixteen about believing in him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but instead, or is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have, they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And then John 3 concludes the whole chapter. If we jump down to verse 36, um, or maybe turn the page, we have the summary statement that, that brings it all back. It says, Bottom line, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath. It remains on them. It is already there. But if you believe in the Son, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Have a relationship with God both now and that lasts forever, which is good. So... That is the gospel. That is the gospel. That word literally means good news. That is um, the message of Jesus. That is the message of the church that Jesus starts as a result of all of this. And, and really, it's the mantra that we are supposed to hold to as a church from the beginning to now and forevermore until Jesus returns again. And so recognizing that this message is our message, our reality as the church, what I want to do with the time that remains is you could say draw a line from the point at which this verse came into existence in John to today. The, uh, you could say a story of the church as to uh, how the church has fought to uphold this message of John 3.16 and maybe where it's, you know, maybe risked missing that at points and then fought to, to get it back. And so what I'm going to do in the next 12 minutes or less, that's my goal, my record is 11 minutes and 49 seconds, is to give you a full history of the church in 12 minutes or less. And to paint the story of John 3.16, not just throughout church history, but then get very specific as to how it relates to you and me in this church at First Christian Church together. So here we go, giddy up. It all starts with Jesus, of course. That's our cross. So it starts with Jesus and the message of John 3.16 that just as Moses lifted up the snake, the bronze snake, so too Jesus was lifted up on the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again, conquering death. That's what we celebrate every Easter. And then upon that, he spent 40 days with his disciples, giving them instructions as to how this whole church thing was going to get started. And then after those 40 days, he's with his disciples and he says, I'm going to leave you, which kind of freaks them out a little bit. But he says, it's okay. Don't worry. What's coming, he says, is even better. Because as Jesus, you know, God in the flesh, I am limited. He is limited to one square foot of real estate on the planet at one particular given time. And so he says, even though I'm going away, I'm sending something even better, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you're going to do even better things because that's God's presence and indwelling with all of us, in all of us, among all of us as his church. Okay. And so the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven, we have the next book in the New Testament, which is called the book of Acts, which is uh, short for the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples, or really just the act of starting 
the church. And so in Acts chapter two, uh, one of those disciples by the name of Peter, he preaches and 3,000 people accept Jesus. Big day for Peter. Big day for the church, big day for Jesus. And so from there, the church is birthed and you pretty much have for the next 1,500 years or so, and uh, there's a few bumps along the way, as you know, churches, we have our bumps, but more or less, you just have the church for 1,500 years. And then in the era of around 1,500, um, there becomes a little bit of a problem in the church in that the state uh, of the time, the government, if you will, it kind of got mixed up into the church and kind of got corrupt and some weird things started going down. And um, if you know the author, Tony Campolo, um, Tony Campolo says it this way. He says, mixing the church and government, he says, it's kind of like mixing ice cream with horse manure. It doesn't ruin the horse manure, but it sure does ruin the ice cream. And so essentially that's what's happening. There's some corrupt practices where instead of John 3.16, instead of Jesus being the way to eternal life, uh, because the state was involved in the church, they were, they were selling these things called indulgences where you could more or less buy your way to increase your chances to making it into heaven. And so this guy by the name of Martin Luther uh, comes along and says, hey, this is bananas. Um, this is not what the church is to be about. And he protests what's happening in what's called the Protestant protest, Protestant Reformation. He wanted to bring reform to the corrupt nature, to the messed up ice cream of the church. And um, the, you could say that the messed up ice cream didn't respond so well to that. You know, he came back and he said, you know, this is, this is nuts. We need to focus on what he said, sola scriptura, which is a fancy Latin word for scripture alone. We need to get back to scripture being our authority on things. And uh, sola fide, which means faith alone. And we need to get back to faith in Jesus Christ is our way to eternal life, not these selling of indulgences and things like that. Um, and so it wasn't received real well. And you could say this was our first ever really big church split. Anyone who's ever been part of a church split knows that's a nasty thing. And really, we've been living in the implications of that church split ever since. And so you have the, the Protestant church and the Catholic church. And thanks be to God, there's been lots of reform on, you know, on both sides and reconciliation, which is good. But at this point in history, you could say this was a domino that just, if you've ever seen one of those cool domino things where it just kind of spreads out, uh, this is kind of the negative side of a domino effect. And that once it started with this, you've got it wrong kind of deal. Then more of this, well, you don't have it right, we have it right. And then you got branches of splits, of splits of branches, and you have all these various denominations that split off to where we now have in our country over 2,000 registered Christian denominations, which is mind-blowing. In fact, I have here on my shelf is the handbook of denominations in the United States, 11th edition. I need a book that's this thick to keep straight all of the, you could say, disunity that's taken place in the church, which is really a sad state when you think about the prayer that Jesus prayed for his church uh, before um, you know, leaving the scene and giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John 17, he prays this. He says, I pray also. He, he first prays for his disciples who are gonna start the church, and then he says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. I have given them the glory that you have given me, that they may be one as you and I, as we are one. Talking, Jesus talking to the Father and the Holy Spirit, as the Trinity is one, God, Father, Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus, I and them, you and me, so that they may be, talking about us, the church, be brought to complete unity. 
And so, a sad reality in the midst of a prayer that Jesus has for his church. Um, but coming back to this particular congregation, we actually have a neat story in that our particular congregation finds its roots in really an effort to combat this. And so go forward, one of these branches, actually it's a couple of these branches, about 1800, there was a setting where a couple of denominations were together in a particular setting and they were going to celebrate communion together. And all of a sudden there's this fight that breaks out between the denominations saying, hey, you can't take communion with us because you believe this, that, and this about how communion should be done. And then we believe this. And this few group, a few guys from the group kind of off to the side said, essentially, this is nuts. This is nuts. We might disagree on some matters of theology and practice, but we agree, you could say on John 3.16, we believe that Jesus was sent, that we could be given the gift of a new life and that it was through his sacrifice and that you know, he said to do this in remembrance of me. We agree that we should you know, remember Jesus through the broken uh, bread, which represents his body, and through the cup, which represents his shed blood. We should be able to take communion at least together and thus was born the restoration unity movement of which this church finds its roots. And so essentially one of the mantras that came out of this was, uh, first of all, they wanted to restore biblical, you know, scripture alone, biblical New Testament practices for what the church is supposed to be that had been removed, as well as focus on unity, uh, how we can come together rather than focus on our differences where possible. And uh, in fact, one of the ways in which that plays out every week here, very specifically, um, is exactly how it got started with the whole communion thing. You'll notice here that when we participate in communion, that uh, we either say, or you see on the screens, Something to the effect of, you know, you don't have to be a member here at First Christian Church in order to participate in communion. That if Jesus Christ is the Savior and the Lord of your life, essentially if John 3.16 is true of you, then you are free to participate. And so that's one of the understandings that comes out of this background uh, that we even still adhere to uh, this day. And so, kind of cool deal. I am way off my notes because I've got most of this. Uh, my 12 minutes is running up, I bet. So, um, so that's, that's, that's the good side of it. But unfortunately, there's a sad irony to this particular movement of which we are part of in that this whole unity movement uh, within um, a number of decades split three ways. So kind of a, a bad irony that the unity movement splits three ways. And so um, when you see uh, one of these three settings, the Acapella Church of Christ, uh, that's one. There's the Christian churches, churches of Christ, or sometimes called the independent Christian churches. That's two. And then the third branch is the disciples of Christ, of which we find this particular congregation, First Christian Church and First Christian Church Lovington. Uh, we have our roots in the disciples of Christ. And what happened in around 1900, the turn of the century, was uh, the turn of the 20th century, there was a movement theologically towards what's called liberal theology. Now, before we get, it has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with our view of scripture and Jesus, this kind of stuff right here. And there was an, you could say, a, a tearing away, a deconstruction of scripture as authoritative, as Jesus, as the way to salvation and all kinds of other matters. And by the 1980s, the disciples of Christ had more or less fully ascribed to that theology. Now, the problem was when we say the disciples of Christ, the denomination, uh, it was the leadership and the seminary level that had um, 
that adhered to all of this. And so to make a long story medium length, that's all I'm going to promise at this point, um, there was a group of churches, three churches specifically, one in Texas, First Christian Church Decatur, and First Christian Church Lovington, ironically, that got together and said, hey, just because this is where the leadership level of the denomination is heading theologically, this is not where the people in the pews are at, and it's not where the pastors in the pulpits are at, at least not yet, but as soon as the seminaries start feeding pastors from this understanding, it's going to change, you know, the whole direction of, um, you know, what Jesus had in mind for the church. And so, um, a little group out of the three churches in Texas, First Christian Decatur and First Christian Lovington, started a deal called Disciple Renewal, where they were aiming to bring renewal to the theological wrongness, if you will, of where the disciple of Christ were heading. And so in order to, to do that, to get back to, you know, restoring biblical and faith in Jesus, John three sixteen stuff alone, um, they brought, the disciple renewal group, we brought uh, proposals, uh, if you will, to the national assembly, the national conference for the disciples of Christ. And so the first proposal that was brought was, hey, can we say that scripture is our highest authority on faith and practice. Disciple Renewal said, can we, can we say that? And the disciples of Christ, the, the denomination, rejected that proposal. They brought a second proposal that said, essentially John 3.16, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, or even more specifically, John 14.6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Well, now the denomination knew that they were in a bit of a pickle because they would have to respond directly to this great divide uh, theologically that was present about John 3.16. And so what the denomination did was tabled their response. They just didn't answer. And for two years, they kept silent on it. In fact, I remember my professor uh, at Milligan College saying he'll never forget the headlines. Disciples table Jesus. You know, they put it off. Uh, But sure enough, Two years later, they did come back and they rejected that resolution as well. And so from there, Disciple Renewal was banned from bringing any more um, proposals to, to the conference. They, they were kicked out more or less. And it was at that point that it was clear that the mission uh, of this church and Disciple Renewal to bring orthodox, biblical, theological renewal to the disciples of Christ simply would not be. And so... In the early 2000s, I think 2004 officially, First Christian Church Decatur left the Disciples of Christ, recognizing that we do not ascribe to the theology that they are going to reject, and along with that, realizing that we no longer had um, you know, a seat at the table, if you will, with Bring Renewal to the Disciples. Disciple Renewal changed names and became Disciple Heritage Fellowship, or DHF if you've been around and heard a little bit about what we're doing with that. And so Disciple Heritage Fellowship is a group of churches who find their roots in the story of Disciples of Christ and the Restoration Unity Movement and Scripture alone and Faith alone and all that, but have stayed committed to that. And so that is the group at which um, our church is responsible for leading these 70 churches that are part of that fellowship, to which you might be saying, wow, Brian, why are you telling us all of this uh, exactly? What, what, is this, what does this have to do with anything? Well, in the last six months, the two questions I've got more than any other is pretty much that. Like, well, now what exactly is this DHF thing? What is this Disciple Heritage Fellowship thing? And to which 
There's your answer. And the other side of it is, and tell me again, why are we in charge of it? And so I want to answer that one as well. So to respond to, okay, why are we stepping into this? Why are we, you know, taking this on? Um, You could say that just like every other major movement in history, you know, whether it was the Reformation, the Restoration Movement, or, you know, to bring renewal, whatever the case would be, it has always been a fight to defend John 3, 16, to hold fast to what Scripture says, which what Scripture says is that faith alone in Jesus Christ is the way to eternal life, to hold fast to that. And where that hasn't gone well, we we see kind of some of these things. And so the question might be, okay, so if we're not, here to defend John 3.16 anymore, then what is the purpose then of Disciple Heritage Fellowship? Well, it's important to remember that when it comes to what God has called us to, when it comes to, you know, this message right here, that he has not called us to a posture of defense. He has not called us to live in a posture of defense, but instead he calls us in his word to a posture of offense. That we are called not to argue the gospel against those who conscientiously have chosen to reject it. That's not why we're on the planet. In fact, Jesus, with his own disciples, he sends them off into towns and villages to share this message. And he says to them, if they do not receive your message, well then shake the dust from your sandals and move on. And we believe that's what God has called us to do, to shake the dust of our sandals and move on from that fight, and to move into what it is he did put us on the planet to do, to not defend John 3.16 against those who have conscientiously rejected, but to instead to now go, to be carriers, to be bringers of this good news of Jesus Christ, of the good news that Jesus told us to bring and to carry into the world in his, frankly, his final words as he sent us off as the church, he said this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, known as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so to the question, why are we doing this whole DHF thing? Well, it's to be responsive to the call of God to go. To, to go. To go and to bring John 3.16 to the nation through the 70 network churches that we are a part of. And then to very specifically, Jesus' command, to the nations. To, as we are a part of Cuba, Kenya, Kazakhstan. And to helping these other 70 churches, who many of them have no involvement in global missions. Helping them bring that same message to bring John 3.16 to the nations. Making disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we are doing this whole DHF thing. And then maybe one more question that I would be asking if I was sitting in your seat is, okay, that's great for the church, but what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? What does this have to do with me? What does this actually have to do with us? Well, remember, you are this church. You are the church. The church isn't some place, something, some building. It is you and it is me together. In fact, 
The way that God set it up was in the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to dwell in a tabernacle. I'm not going to dwell in a temple. That's how he did it in the Old Testament. I'm going to make my dwelling place in you and among you, that the presence of God resides in you and me as his church to be pursuers of the prayer that Jesus gave, that we would be unified and faithful to the cornerstone of our faith that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so that's why it matters to us. But I'll tell you why it matters to me. It matters to me because on May 18th of 1996, a 16-year-old kid who had no understanding of any of this accepted this message, which has changed my life, changed my eternity, and I hope this matters to you because at some point on some date, whether you can figure out exactly when it was or wasn't, that this day you stand in the reality that this is true of you and that your life and that your eternity is forever changed. And if that's not true of you, well, then I'd encourage you, don't walk out of this place without having a conversation with me or one of the other pastors or in Lovington with one of the elders uh, about how this can be your reality, both in this life and for all of eternity. And so to that end, let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we start with thankfulness that you did not send your, world to, your son into the world to condemn the world. We we are, we are condemned, we are stuck, we are dead in our sin without you. But instead, God, you gave us a gift of love that we cannot comprehend, especially those of us with kids. We cannot comprehend that you would send your one and only son who would then give his life so that we could be given the gift of a new life. And so for that, we give you thanks um, that we will never be able to repay, um, but we can be obedient to live that message, to share that message uh, in the way that we live, in the way that we converse, uh, and the way that we point to the hope that we have. So Father, may it be for those of us who carry that message in our hearts, may it be in the living of our lives, not just on billboards and bumper stickers. And God, for those today who, who don't know that reality, God, may their eyes and their hearts be opened to the message of the giving of your son for them uh, so that they too can know the gift of a new life, both here and forevermore. So God, would just spur their, not just their hearts, but also their feet towards uh, one of us to have a conversation um, to begin that new life in you. We thank you for it all made possible by your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.